Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. What form of capitalism is best, broadly speaking? Should we want something as laissez-faire as possible, something with heavy regulation and redistribution, or is there an optimal mix that we should aim for? And if we want to compromise between these extremes, what should it look like? What are the trade-offs that we need to be aware of? I'm pleased to discuss these questions today with Lane Kenworthy. Lane is a professor of sociology and the Yanklovich Chair in Social Thought at the University of California, San Diego. His latest book, Social Democratic Capitalism, was released earlier this year. Lane, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Now, social democracy, I think people hear that, and then they've also heard the phrase lately about democratic socialism, and they've heard that from Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and then they also hear there's this thing called social democracy, and to further confuse things, people who are who are who say they are democratic socialists or they believe in social democracy, they all seem to love Scandinavia. And indeed, in the book, you write quite a bit about Scandinavia. So if you were in a room with Bernie Sanders and AOC, would you basically agree or would you disagree on a lot of things? Uh, I think there would be mostly agreement. Uh, Bernie, Bernie Sanders started calling himself a socialist like a lot of people did in the 1960s. And I, I think he stuck with that label uh, even as he got into electoral politics, in part because he could, he he ended up running in a state where he wasn't didn't get into much trouble for using that label, uh, and then he continued to use it. I think in part just to signify the fact that he considered himself on the the far left of where most Democrats in the United States stand. But I think for the most part, what he's proposed in his two campaigns is to more or less put in place a set of policies that emulate what countries like Denmark and Sweden have. And, and in most of the world, those type of policies or that sort of setup is called social democratic rather than democratic socialist. But there is something called democratic socialism, and that is different because I, I did a debate with someone. He said he's a democratic socialist. And, and having read your book, he didn't sound at all like you. He seemed to really not like capitalism, where you do like capitalism. Yeah, very much. So I, I think of socialism in the way that most people for the last century have tended to define it. Like any term, there are, of course, lots of different interpretations. But I think of it as a, uh, an economy where a good chunk, let's just say arbitrarily, maybe two-thirds of the economy is in public hands. Public meaning maybe the government runs it, maybe uh, stock shares are distributed broadly across the citizenry and you can't pass them on to your kids, or maybe we're talking about worker cooperatives or, or something mm -hmm. like this. Right, uh, that's, what that, that's, that's fundamentally, fundamentally different. Yeah, that's fundamentally yeah. different from, uh, from what I call social democracy or social democratic capitalism. And in fact, you would say that the United States is a social democracy but just not a great one. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that's an important point. A, a lot of people tend to think about this as a, a sort of difference in kind or, or type, a categorical difference. And I really think of it as much more of a continuum. 
And you can see this most easily if you look at historical data. So the United States does have a, a welfare state and public insurance programs or welfare state programs are, are really the core feature of, of social democracy. Uh, and, and we have a lot more of those than we did a, a century ago. Uh, in fact, uh, I think a useful way to think about this is that the difference in terms of the scope and generosity of public insurance programs, the difference between the United States today and today's Sweden or Denmark is smaller than the difference between the United States of a century ago and, and the United States today. So the U.S. has things which, uh, which would be part, which would qualify it as a social democracy, but there are other things it doesn't have, which, which a, more, a, a better fulfillment of sort of the social democratic ideal would have. So, so what doesn't the United States have which would make it a, a better fulfillment of the idea of social democracy? Well, in terms of the programs that are altogether absent that we would need to create from scratch, the two main ones I think are, are a national paid sickness insurance program and paid parental leave. Most of the other stuff we have it's just that it's less generous and covers fewer people. So think of health insurance. We've got, I mean, most Americans have health insurance, but not all. And that separates us, not, actually not only from the social democracies, but uh, um, from all other rich democratic nations. We've got a, a public pension program, social security for retirement. It's not quite as generous as in a number of other countries, but it exists. We provide some money, mainly through Medicaid, for elder care. It's just far less than what Denmark and Sweden do. Uh, we do some early education, childcare and preschool, but that's done um, at the state level and only a few states and now a couple of cities also have it. Whereas in Denmark and Sweden, it's a national program and, and basically eligible uh, or available to, to every family um, once their kid reaches age one and beyond. So most of the difference I would say is in the the scope of the coverage and the degree of generosity of already existing programs, even though there are a few that I mentioned earlier where we just don't have a, a national program at all at the moment. So, and uh, so government would do more, uh, including there's also, I guess, what some people call sort of uh, active labor market policies, you know, retraining, uh, like maybe lifelong learning kinds of plans, job placement assistance, maybe another kind of. Uh, uh, maybe not the prime piece of the puzzle, secondary piece of the puzzle, but so, but government would do more. But you, but again, you, you would still have what, by any definition, would be a thriving sort of capitalist economy. Uh, you know, pri private companies uh, they can they can make a lot of money. Uh, people can invest in these companies, and they be, they can become they can become rich. Uh, you, it's not a is is it a heavy is it a would it, would it is it a heavily regulated kind of state? Uh, is Scandinavia again, which is people haven't picked it up as sort of sort of the model for you, the sort of the real world model? Are these are these businesses heavily regulated? Do the second they get big, do they get split up? How does that work? Well, uh, so yeah, I I think the simplest way to think about social democratic capitalism is you take a capitalist economy and you tack on a, a large welfare state, but then also importantly, uh, and this is a, a direction that the the Nordic countries especially, and now other other European nations as well, have been moving in the last 
I would say three decades in particular, although for the Nordic countries, it's a bit longer. You also have a, a lot of attention or worry about employment. So there was a view on the left, uh, which I think reached its peak in the, in the 1970s, maybe the early 1980s, that thought the direction that rich democratic countries were headed was away from paid work. So the future looked like machines and robots doing more and more of the, the labor. And so the idea or the challenge was to figure out the right set of policies that would allow more and more people to live without engaging in paid work. That's changed uh, very dramatically and fundamentally uh, for a variety of reasons. One is that uh, already at that time, more and more women were moving into to paid work, um, but people didn't kind of really fully absorb the the, the consequences of that. But, but maybe more importantly, they realized that if you're gonna pay for a big welfare state, especially in an era where uh, finance can move around between countries more and more, uh, where you've got a baby boom generation that's about to, at that time was about to, to hit retirement age and it was gonna cost a lot of money because of pensions and, and healthcare. So you, you need, uh, or at least um, one, one useful way, one good way to pay for a generous welfare state is to have a lot of people in, uh, in paid work uh, because you can then tax them. And so you, you then don't need super high tax rates in order to generate the tax revenue to, to pay for these things. So modern social democratic capitalism is not just capitalism plus a big welfare state. It's also a, a great deal of attentiveness to, to making sure you've got policies that are conducive to people being in paid work. And part of that, so you mentioned active labor market policies, that's been around for a long time, but it, um, but it, it gets even more attention. There's more spending on things like retraining and job placement. Uh, so a, a, a sort of a capitalist thriving public sector with a, a large welfare state, larger than the United States, again, Scandinavia being the model sort of tacked on. I think the concern among uh, many Americans, you know, certainly more so on the right, would be that that large welfare state, whether because of it changes people's incentives or because of taxes, ends up harming that capitalist private sector, or or at least that it wouldn't be as 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 vigorous as it would be otherwise with a smaller uh, welfare state. Do we see those concerns played out in Scandinavia? So I think it's a perfectly reasonable worry. Uh, and ultimately, the only way we can, uh, can get to an answer about this question, uh, does the big welfare state that modern social democracy has, uh, does it uh, reduce incentives, reduce innovation, and thereby slow economic growth and in the long run, uh, you know, end up being worse rather than better, even for the people you're trying to help most, the, the least, um, the least well off. Um, and I think the empirical evidence so far suggests that at the level of, say, Denmark or Sweden, um, no, it probably doesn't hurt long run growth. Um, we've, we've got a good bit of data from the rich democratic countries going back over a century. And as they've, and this includes the United States, as they've slowly built up uh, more and more public spending, more and more public insurance programs, we don't see any evidence of a sustained slowdown in, in economic growth. We don't see countries like Sweden and Denmark, uh, Norway and Finland are in this too, 
Norway, I don't think we should count too heavily because they've got all that oil uh, revenue. So they're not, not really a good country from which to draw much in the way of inferences. Uh, but we don't see these countries growing more slowly. They're all quite good at innovation according to, to most efforts to, to score innovation. So uh, it's a perfectly reasonable worry, but I just don't see evidence that, that convinces me uh, that say adding on another 10% of GDP here in the United States through a variety or for a variety of public insurance programs and programs to support employment would harm our, our medium or long run economic growth. Are there, at, uh, you know, one criticism of this idea is that, look, these, these countries are much smaller, uh, a different history, different culture, more homogenous. Uh, if you look at uh, uh, Scandinavians in the United States, even many generations, since, you know, since their parents, great parents, great, great grandparents move, they tend to, you know, be more positive about what government can do, more trusting in government. But there's all these differences and I think that we can just sort of cut and paste the policies from sort of these micro countries into a 300 million population continent spanning country with a different past. And there wouldn't be some, there wouldn't be some surprises, some negative trade-offs um, sort of sort of beyond belief you know can can we just cut and paste scandinavian social democracy on the united states and you know just it's it's what's 10 percentage points of gdp that sounds like it's just a a mechanistic exercise and we really don't have to worry about any 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 trade-offs or losing anything special about america in the process yeah this too i think is a perfectly plausible reason for concern or skepticism uh about the idea that, that we'd be fine and, and indeed better if we move closer to a, a Nordic or social democratic package of, uh, of policies. Um, I've got a chapter in the book where I try to walk through each of the various versions of this argument about what's special about the Nordic countries that allows them to put in place this set of policies that, that help the poor, that equalize opportunity, that increase economic security without suffering trade-offs, especially in the area of, uh, of economic growth or economic dynamism. Um, and so I'll just, I'll give you one example here. So a very mm -hmm. common uh, version of this says there's some kind of cultural um, uh, work ethic in the, in the Nordic countries that keeps people working hard, even when you have a, a set of programs that would allow people to just uh, live off the government rather than engaging in paid work. So you've got a, a set of incentives that according to this argument or this hypothesis would lead lots of Americans to just stop working in, in the long run. That would be bad for economic growth. Um, but when you look at data that we have, uh, there's just no indication of this, uh, of this kind of difference in work ethic. You can look at things like average number of, uh, of weeks or hours worked by people who are in the labor force. And it tends to be um, pretty low in the, in the Nordic countries, not what you'd expect if they've got, uh, if they've got this kind of cultural uh, work ethic that, uh, that keeps people working. You can look at public opinion survey data on attitudes about uh, taking advantage of, of government programs. And then you can look at, at particular cases of policies. So a, a good example here is uh, sickness insurance in Sweden in the 1980s got so generous that people could get 90% or more of their salary if they were out uh, supposedly sick from uh, work. And you could do this for 
more than just a, a, a few days. If Swedes uh, tended to keep working despite uh, pretty strong uh, work disincentives, you would have expected um, not much impact in terms of people showing up to work, but instead, in fact, uh, on any given day in the late 1980s, if I'm remembering right, it's something like a quarter of the Swedish workforce would, would be out sick. Right. You can see this with respect to disability programs in, in Norway uh, as well. So um, the point is there are, there are a variety of, of uh, reasons uh, for this line of skepticism, and I think it's reasonable to consider them, and, and that's what I, I try to do in the, the book. And, and my conclusion is that there really isn't much reason to think that there's something unique or special about this particular set of countries that allows this policy setup to work only there and, and not in other nations like the United States. One thing I noticed that when uh, people like Bernie Sanders talk about Scandinavia is they, they you know, they talk about, you know, uh, you know, that we should have that kind of healthcare system of what he says is maybe not quite what you see in all Scandinavian countries, but sort of national healthcare, more paid leave, all these programs. But the way he and some other folks to left would pay for these programs is through big taxes on corporations, investors, uh, very high income taxes. Uh, but basically, rich people and companies is how they would pay for the plan. That, I mean, that, that's not how Scandinavia pays for their big welfare state, right? No, you're right. Um, so in most of the Nordic countries, the tax system overall, when you take into account all types of, uh, of taxes and all levels of government, is probably closer to a proportional tax system than ours is. That is to say, people at all points on the income distribution pay roughly the same share of their income in, uh, in taxes. And then they redistribute a lot of that money. That's, that's how they help the poor. That's how they help people that fall victim to all kinds of risks in life, whether it's disability, unemployment, sickness, uh, old age, whatever it is. So yeah, if we were to strictly adopt the, the Nordic model here, that is to say not, not only in its programs, but in, in how you fund it, um, what we would do probably first and foremost is create a national consumption tax, maybe a value-added tax, which most European countries have. And that would end up raising the bulk of the revenue. Now, the value-added tax, uh, like any consumption tax, is, is actually regressive. People at the low end of the income distribution tend to pay higher amounts of their income or, or a higher proportion of their income. You can adjust it, massage it in various ways to make it less regressive, and then you can offset that with say increases in income taxes for uh, for high earners and increases in other kinds of taxes, uh, but that's that's more or less how we would uh, how we would do it, which is a very different strategy from funding than uh, than Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren have been um, proposing. Now I, I'll add one caveat there, which uh -huh. is that uh, there's much more income inequality here in the United States, and so you can if you think about the Nordic taxation strategy as, um, as having a proportional or, or flat tax system um, because it's fairer or because it's more likely to be, uh, to get widespread political support, then you'd say, well, let's, let's do the same thing here in the United States. But there's another way to think about the, the Nordic system, which is that they, they just simply go where the money is. So in order to raise enough revenue, you you end up having to tax everyone, but you do that because uh, the income is pretty well spread out in those countries. 
So if you follow that second rationale here in the United States, then it would in fact point you toward more of, a, uh, of increasing taxes by, by hitting those higher in the income distribution, just because our, our pre-tax income distribution is much more unequal, especially now, um, than, than is true in Sweden or Denmark or Norway. Is there, is there I realize we, you know, we've had um, the Democratic Party in the United States seems to be more interested in this. Uh, maybe they don't quite fully, <laughs> maybe a lot of people don't quite fully what Scandinavia today looks like versus, you know, the 1980s. And sometimes when they describe aspects of their healthcare program, paid leave, maybe they get the details wrong. But something about that vision seems to, I think, it has, has taken root uh, in the Democratic Party and among, uh, you know, some elected officials or people running for high office in the party. Is it as popular, though, in the social democracies as it once was, whether it's Scandinavia or whether it's you know, Germany? Is it, I mean, are those, are those parties that, that are pushing this vision, are they as popular as they ever were? Or do we see the critics of that system, whether from the left or the right, uh, get, you know, gain, gaining influence and popularity uh, in, in the social democracies of Europe? Well, here I think you, you'd want to separate the, the policies from the parties that historically were, were mainly responsible for putting those policies in place. I think the, the overall set of policies is as popular, maybe more popular than ever. And I think you see that in the, the way that uh, center-right parties, who often in these countries have, uh, have been the, the governments over the last three decades, much more so than was the case from the 1930s through the 1970s, um, the way that for the most part, they don't really, uh, they don't really attack these, uh, these policies. They, they don't try to, to do away with them. If anything, they, they tend to spend more of their effort trying to, to weaken labor unions or the union movement rather than cut into the, the welfare state. I mean, they, they do tweak it for sure, but there, there's no fundamental challenge to the size or scope of the welfare state in those countries. Now, social democratic parties, that's another story, they, they clearly are less popular than they were at their peak in the, the middle to latter part of the, of the 1900s. Um, and, and there are a variety of reasons for that, but I think one fundamental problem they face is that they've succeeded in getting this pretty effective uh, system put in place. And so now they end up mostly just campaigning to maintain the status quo. And you know that's not very jazzy, it's not very exciting. Uh, and so I think they suffer politically for that reason. It's not the only reason, but, uh, but I do think that's part of the struggle that they've faced in the last 20, 30 years. And now more recently, of course, there's been this rise of, uh, of anti-immigrant so-called populism, which is, which is partly anti-immigrant. But, but, do you, but in, in a country with, you know, uh, or in any country that, that has a lot of immigrants, that has a high uh, share of their population, foreign-born, does that prevent, is that an obstacle toward moving more in the social democratic direction? Uh, I, I think it does tend to be an obstacle politically. Uh, I, I think we, we see that if you look at the countries that, have tended to adopt these policies historically. The Nordic countries, they've, uh, until very recently, I mean, Sweden, for example, has changed quite dramatically in the last 40 years in terms of its immigrant share. It's now higher than here in the, the United States. Uh, but in, in, during the period when a lot of these policies were put in place, they were, they were quite homogenous. Um, but, but let me just also mention that that's a different question. The question of uh, how you get to these policies 
politically is a different question from the one we were talking about earlier, which is whether if you put them in place, they would work effectively, let's say in a country like the United States. Do you think that the current pandemic creates creates a moment to move in that direction? We have government very involved in the economy. To some degree, the government seems like it is the economy at the moment. Uh, we're, you know, there's been there's been calls for expanding paid leave that we see that you know, people see the importance of people, you know, staying home from work they're sick and and still getting and still getting pay uh, when they do it, or the fact that the U.S. debt to GDP ratio is seem to be going up like a rocket right now. Will it sort of hurt the idea of moving forward toward having a bigger safety net? Just because it seems like we 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 can afford it, we really can't afford it. I I think in the short run the latter is more likely to to be right. A lot of people have this idea that that most advances in uh, the size or scope of the welfare state occur during or because of crises, and I think that reflects mostly this view that the Great Depression, um, you know, that that was where the the welfare state was initially created in the U.S. and elsewhere, and. And so that must be how it happens. But I think when you right. look at the historical experience, that's much more the exception than the rule. Uh, and once the, the economic crisis is passed, people tend to sort of snap back to their pre-existing views about how, how big a welfare state or how much government they want. And as you said, uh, um, the worry about the deficit, which tends to balloon you know, for good reasons, I think, during economic downturns, tends to offset any momentum uh, in favor of you know making temporary programs permanent or adding well, new. Well, if it is if it isn't a if it isn't a crisis now I've kind of gone one extra question I was going to so forgive me but if it isn't a crisis that that creates the momentum then what creates the momentum just that as a society we sort of get richer and we 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 just like to have a bigger safety net and we we ask more of government. That's that's actually absolutely right. Uh, we. We know from a, a lot of historical experience and data that as societies get richer, people tend to want more insurance. And some of that insurance is better provided through government than through private sources. And so that's a, that's a big source of sort of slow but steady rise in support for programs. Uh, and then we also now have this added advantage of being able to see the, 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 the programs or set of policies in, in countries like the Nordic ones work pretty well without any apparent dramatic or dire trade-offs. And so uh, more and more people, whether it's Bernie Sanders or others can come along and say, hey, let's, let's try that. Uh, and so, you know, gradually, slowly over time, we add on more programs or expand existing ones. They don't seem to have uh, really bad effects and, and people come to like them. And so you have this slow but steady kind of ratcheting effect where you get to a, a larger and larger welfare state. My guest today has been Lane Kenworthy. Lane, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jim. Thank you.